dive into the heart of the Syrian civil war on insurgency unmasked by the modern insurgent. Explore the historical legacy, geopolitical complexities and human impact of the Syrian civil war. From expert insights to gripping narratives, this podcast offers an in-depth understanding of the conflict. Come and journey through the Syrian civil war with the modern insurgent. This is Insurgency Unmasked, the modern insurgent's very own podcast where we analyse global conflict in a series-based form. Together, let's dive into the history and politics behind the world's conflicts alongside renowned experts. No narratives, no biases. Let's kick off with who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Daniel Hall. Uh, I'm a writer at The Modern Insurgent. I do insurgency reports mostly. Um, I am a grad student at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies uh, in the program of uh, Nonproliferation and Terrorism Studies. Uh, and most of my focus is on, let's say, uh, Syria and Kurdistan, as well as the conflict with Turkey. Uh, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And recently I've been focusing a little bit more on like uh, some of the non-Ukrainian groups that are allied on the Ukrainian side in the war with Russia. So that's where I tend to spend most of my focus on. Hmm. Brilliant. And so today we're going to be talking about the Syrian interim government. So what is the primary goal and mandate of the Syrian interim government? Who are they? What do they do? So the Syrian interim government is essentially the organization or the government in charge of the opposition controlled areas of northern Syria. Um, So we have the Syrian opposition coalition. That's more like uh, the international component of it that um, is at the UN that's uh, meeting with EU leaders, American leaders, stuff like that. And then the Syrian interim government is basically supposed to be in charge of administrating and uh, providing resources for these opposition controlled areas. Um, So that is their main goal. Um, And the way they operate is they have a local council set up in each of the um, opposition controlled towns, basically. Um, These towns have elections for the most part, um, but they are mostly controlled by Turkey, um, as we will talk about more, um, Turkey has sort of co-opted the SIG and uses it to promote its own geopolitical goals. Um, So while on paper, the Syrian interim government is in charge of these areas, it's much more complex than that. What we'll see is that uh, essentially the uh, militias and the factions that are affiliated with the SIG have much more power than the SIG itself and that um, from a geopolitical perspective, I guess Turkey is the one with the real power above anybody else in this situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're, def- we're gonna be coming on to Turkey's role in SIG and kind of the whole war in general. What does it look like? So say you live in an area where SIG are operating, what does it look like on the ground? So as I mentioned, um, on paper, the local councils are supposed to be representative of these areas. So you have your, just for example, the Afrin local council, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
in essence, if you have complaints, you're supposed to be able to um, address them with these representatives and these representatives are supposed to, you know, be able to help you. Uh, but again, in reality, what we see is much different. Uh, essentially, uh, there's a patronage system operating in these areas and the militias tend to be really dominant. Um, so in reality, if you have a problem, you just tend to take it up with uh, militias. For example, um, there's this uh, there's this anecdote about this one man who imports grains from Turkey uh, and basically because he had the backing of, I, I believe it was Sultan Murad, one of the Turkmen factions that's part of SIG. Um, he essentially was able to um, hold hostage these shop owners who wouldn't uh, sell his imports from Turkey. And it was Sultan Murad who basically kidnapped the uh, guy's son, I believe it was, and basically said, hey, you better sell this guy's you know, imports or else. Uh, whereas you compare that to someone living in Duras or they basically just have to take the loss on that. So uh, basically, uh, if you're trying to do anything, you really have to be affiliated with one of these factions. Um, if not, things can get pretty bad for you. You're at the whims of their actions. Um, and then really nothing gets done without Turkey's approval. I mean, even like humanitarian stuff, that's all run through AFAD, which is the... Uh, Turkish government agency that's in charge of humanitarian work and things like that. Um, even in terms of like, uh, you know, utilities and things of that nature, it's being done through Turkey now. Um, each of the local councils has, for example, signed a deal to provide electricity for their areas with a uh, Turkish company. And what's weird about it is it's it's not one, you know, like unifying agreement. Each local council has signed their own independent agreement to uh, provide electricity through this one Turkish state company. Um, it, it's really interesting. And then even like the post offices, the medical facilities, the education. I mean, this is all being done through Turkey at this point. Um, so in reality, like the idea of autonomy is only um, on paper for the SIG. Um, and I mean, even though like the front lines are mostly static now, right? There's not been any major operations from any side in a few years now. Um, but still you're dealing with potential um, airstrikes or artillery fire from uh, the Assad government and their forces, uh, the SDF as well, especially in the African region is uh, carrying out a an insurgency against the Turkish occupation of Afrin. Um, so, and then there's the infighting between all the various factions, which is pretty common. Uh, so even though there's not been any major operation in a few years, it's hard to say that, that if you're like a civilian living in these areas, you can really enjoy peace um, mm -hmm. because either the factions are fighting amongst themselves, uh, you're living under artillery fire, airstrikes from the Assad government, or uh, the SDFs carrying out attacks against, you know, uh, SIG authorities and things of that nature. Um, so even though there's not like a huge ongoing military operation, there there's still hardly peace. And uh, of course, the humanitarian situation is not great. We, uh, we had the earthquake a few months ago that devastated parts of northern Syria. Um, the UN helps only so much in these cases. I mean, in, in regards to the earthquake, uh, some SIG authorities were pretty 
critical of the UN's role or lack of role in uh, providing aid. They provided like humanitarian aid, but they didn't provide rescue teams. Uh, and so that made the earthquake response really difficult in these areas. We also had uh, Kurdish uh, citizens of northern Syria under SIG control complain that it seemed like the SIG was perhaps in ignoring them. The town the hardest hit by um, that earthquake in northern Syria was Jindiris, which is the majority Kurdish. And it had a thousand plus casualties from the earthquake. And many of the um, local residents there said they basically had to try to dig people out by hand that they weren't getting help from either the UN or the SIG. And even then, the uh, a lot of the stuff that was getting into northern Syria, a lot of the factions were essentially hoarding it. And AFAD was hoarding it as well. So again, like uh, a lot for a lot of these people, it's to them better than living under the Assad regime, but it's still far from ideal. They're still very prone to abuse. Uh, they don't really have access to all the resources they want. They're at the whims of foreign powers still. So it's a far from ideal situation. Hmm. Uh, every conversation I've had so far for this series, it's a lot of it's come back to factionalism and how like the kind of the splinterization, if that's a word, of mm -hmm. every kind of actor in this war has just ruined the kind of potential for it to be like there's no kind of end in sight other than what we've got right now which isn't no yeah no that's right um i mean uh the factions i mean if they if they put in as much effort as, into fighting each other as they did like the assad regime i mean it would probably be a much different story to be frank um and these these this, these instances of infighting, they just start for the pettiest reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't even know like what a lot of the reasons are. Sometimes it's like political within the ranks of the SIG. Uh, for example, there were two instances last year where HTS actually got involved. And in, uh, we might talk about HTS a bit more, but HTS isn't under the mandate of the Syrian interim government. It's its own separate entity. It's got its own sort of local government that it's instituted. But nonetheless, it's gone involved in these instances of infighting the last few years. Um, and it, it's really just an example of sort of like, um, it's like if gangs were just controlling like an area. I mean, uh, they extort people, they take people's property, you either pay or suffer the consequences, especially if you're Kurdish in some of these areas, particularly Afrin. Um, and I mean, this is one of the contributing factors, right, to the decline of the Syrian revolution. Because what happened is, you know, essentially at the start of the Arab Spring, uh, there were uprisings all over. The first one was in Dara, in the southern part of Syria, a uh, rural part and particularly conservative. I mean, the, the Islamist element has always been kind of present, um, but it wasn't always necessarily the only element. I mean, certainly in the more urban areas, we had a more liberal element as well. But as time's gone on and uh, as foreign powers have begun to exercise their influence, essentially what's happened is um, it's become very sectarian and certainly like the Assad regime is very sectarian as well, right? Mm -hmm. But um, it's sort of driven a wedge and helped uh, splinter the Syrian revolution in a way that's made it essentially impossible, I think, for it to recover from.
I mean, if you, um, for example, uh, Polak Khan, who's one of like the lead intellectuals of the Syrian Kurdish movement, um, if you read his writings during the early parts of uh, the uprisings, he's saying, oh, we need to cooperate with like these uprisings, the opposition to basically strengthen our position and to create a Syria that's, you know, perfect for everyone. Mm. Now, he's affiliated with the Democratic Unity Party, which is in charge of the SDF, and that's opposed to the SIG. Um, but even within the Kurdish element, we've had this factionalization, right, where the Democratic Unity Party and the Kurdish National Coalition are on separate sides. Um, the Kurdish National Coalition is affiliated with the Kurdish Democratic Party in Iraq, which is itself allied with Turkey. And for that reason, it's pretty close to the SIG. Um, but even in this area, it's underrepresented and mm. any attempts they make to sort of promote uh, Kurdish rights go unheard. I mean, particularly at like peace talks, they've attempted to um, like make basic requests like, hey, can we have the name of the country changed from the Syrian Arab Republic to perhaps just the Syrian Republic? Um, this has been a no-go uh, from the Assad regime. And even in the SIG areas, I mean, Kurdish isn't taught. Um, Turkish and Arabic are taught, not Kurdish. Um, so even here, we have this kind of sectarianism breaking down. And as much as, you know, certain elements want to say, oh, we are fine with Kurds, or we, um, Kurds are brothers, things like that. In reality, on the ground, it looks much different. Um, and a lot of these liberal elements that were present at the beginning have gone and joined um, the SDF. For example, I think it was the third or fourth president of the Syrian Opposition Coalition. He defected to the SDF um, mm. a few years ago um, because he didn't like sort of the Islamist tint that was being applied to the SIG. Um, I mean, you can watch documentaries even from Vice who are saying, you know, these fighters who were initially affiliated with uh, the Free Syrian Army, they became disillusioned with it and uh, decided to join the SDF instead. Um, and what you have left are a bunch of factions who uh, basically don't listen to anyone. They can be very brutal in terms of their torture, their extortion, um, the fighting amongst themselves. It's it's like they're opposed to Assad, the Assad regime, but they're more preoccupied with securing their own economic benefits, their own political uh, influences and things of that nature, and really to the detriment of the Syrian opposition. Hmm. So what what would you say, so if SIG could have their like ideal scenario in 10 years' time, they get everything they want, what, what, what would it look like? What do you think, what do you think they envision their goal as? At this point, um, you know, they, they would want, obviously, the Assad regime gone. Um, in peace talks, they've sort of tried to emphasize um, the need for, like, a neutral army to partake, because, obviously, uh, the army is sort of like the, the Syrian army, to be more specific. It's, it's the vanguard of, like, the Assad regime. So, mm -hmm. in their eyes, any transition to a post-Assad regime would require a neutral army. I don't know how you get that, especially with um, these factions under their control that sort of just do their own thing and don't really care to listen to anybody. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's uh, basically they would need to um, overhaul and basically 
rein in all these militias under their control in order to achieve just that part. Um, what we'd probably see is sort of a uh, an ineffective parliamentarian democracy, just based on mm -hmm. how a SIG operates. Um, and at this stage, like it's hard to see how it wouldn't just be under the influence of Turkey um, if this did happen. Um, and in terms of the representation within, uh, I mean, it probably reflect what it is now. I mean, mo Alevis, I mean, there were Alevis, of course, who um, were opposed to the Sadr government at the beginning. At this stage, though, with the sectarian nature of the conflict, I don't think they would be heavily involved in any new post-Assad government. Uh, same with Kurds. I mean, I think there's three or four Kurdish National Coalition representatives in the entirety of the SIG. Uh, you wouldn't probably see any uh, PYD, Democratic Unity Party representatives in this uh, post-Assad government. Um, yeah, I mean, you would have to probably disband the uh, Syrian Arab army just because I don't think it would be possible to trust it under the whims of, uh, with its affiliations with Assad. And of course, with the Iraq experience, we know how like disbanding an entire army loyal to one guy can go. Um, mm. It could like provoke a whole mess. Um, and then again, these factions, they just, they just don't listen to the SIG, really. Uh, they might, like, if Turkey enforces something, they might listen to that, but SIG mm -hmm. really is powerless. Um, they have been recognized by certain governments. Certainly a lot of uh, governments in the West have recognized them as, quote-unquote, the official representative of the Syrian people. The problem now is, though, is that we have the Assad government sort of... Uh, you know, reconciling with a lot of local Arab powers that at first uh, sort of opposed it and supported the Syrian uprising. I mean, Assad attended the Arab League meetings just a few weeks ago. Um, it would take a monumental effort, I think, at this stage to overturn all of this. I think in a lot of people's eyes, um, Assad has basically won the war. And even if the EU and the US is sort of holding off on uh, reconciliation or acknowledging that uh, I think a lot of local powers are not. So in 10 years time, if somehow like things, I mean, you never know what could happen, right? If things changed, um, they would have to kind of demonstrate that they can lead a post-Assad Syria, that it wouldn't be just a failed state or approaching a failed state like uh, Iraq has become, you know, um, because, I mean, Iraq at this stage is just a playground for different foreign elements, um, which is sad. And uh, it's hard to see how Syria wouldn't necessarily come that at this stage with the way the factions operate, with the state of the Syrian army, with the involvement of Iran and Russia and things like that. And even if, um, say, the autonomous administration in northern Syria got destroyed, I mean... It's been around for 10 years now. It's hard to see the impacts of that going away and everyone just sort of laying down their arms. Um, I think if the SIG got everything it wanted, um, you know, they'd be in charge of all of Syria. Perhaps it'd be a little more federalized, but at the end of the day, it'd still be relying on Turkey. It still would probably be heavily sectarian in certain ways, in different ways from the Assad government. The Modern Insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash modern insurgent. 
Thank you very much. What does SIG look like as a fighting force? So I, I guess it's important to kind of go back to the start of the Syrian revolution to kind of get a better grasp for this, because a lot of the factions uh, involved in SIG received support from foreign powers. Um, for example, some of them were uh, part of the train and equip program. Uh, which provided them with tow missiles uh, and other small arms uh, in order to fight the Assad regime. Some of them received training in Turkey or from the CIA, and then others um, received training uh, in the counter-ISIS uh, mission from the U.S. So um, just a few of these, like Al-Jab al-Shamir from the Lefran Front received tow missiles. Uh, the Hamza Division was part of the train and equip program, uh, as was the Levant Front. These are two of the major factions of uh, SIG, uh, Sultan Murad also received two missiles, uh, and they're again one of the dominant factions. Um, but basically, what happens is um, around 2015, uh, Russia intervenes in the Syrian civil war, and this is the big turning point, um, along with Iran, uh, because from this point on, the momentum is without a doubt in the Assad regime's favor. Uh, they make huge gains in uh, Aleppo, eventually capturing it after a long, bloody battle. Um, and this has a knock-on effect of basically uh, the powers that were supporting the Syrian opposition. A lot of them realize, okay, Assad's probably not getting overthrown. Um, and Turkey is uh, one of these. So what happens is um, they decide instead of, you know, necessarily focusing their efforts in Syria on helping to overthrow the Assad government is they decide to concentrate on shoring up their own position and their own geopolitical um, goals in Syria. And this is basically stemming the flow of refugees from Syria into Turkey. Um, you know, there are millions of refugees that crossed from Syria into Turkey and then into Europe or still reside in Turkey itself. And this has been a big factor domestically in Turkish politics, played a big factor in the election recently. Um, Erdogan won, but he basically had to sort of move his position a little bit to saying, hey, I am going to repatriate these Syrians back to Syria because it, they aren't, unfortunately, they face a lot of discrimination um, from the Turkish populace in, Syria, in uh, Turkey. Um, so there's that, they want to kind of stem the flow of displaced people into Turkey. Um, and more importantly, they want to uh, prevent the Syrian Kurdish forces from establishing a continuous and long-running administration. Uh, so around this time in 2016, uh, essentially a few weeks before they begin a major operation, uh, Turkey facilitates uh, a coalition of different free Syrian army militias. Uh, many of these would go on to, you know, form the uh, Syrian National Army, uh, but basically combines them all into one operations room. And then they launch uh, Operation Euphrates Shield with the goal of preventing 
the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, the uh, Kurdish-led element from connecting their eastern cantons with Afrin in the west. Um, so this launches, there's major battles over Azaz, uh, Jarabulus, and with the help of Turkish armed forces, the Free Syrian Army factions prevail. Um, so this is like sort of the first building block on the evolution to what we have now as the Syrian National Army. And a trend we begin to notice is that kind of each time before a major Turkish escalation, there's sort of a meeting and a restructuralization of these fighting forces. The next major one is in late 2017. Um, basically, Turkish Special Forces representatives of MIT, which is the uh, Turkish equivalent of the CIA, members of the Syrian interim government, uh, and the Syrian Opposition Council, uh, along with militia, meter, militia leaders, they all meet in the Euphrates Shield areas. And in this meeting, basically, we have the creation of the Syrian National Army. These uh, militias all organize into three different legions. And uncoincidentally, just about a month later, after this officially comes into existence, um, the Turkish operation against Afrin begins. Afrin is in the northwestern part of Syria, bordering on the Hete province of Turkey. And majority Kurdish, it was one of the areas mostly untouched by the war up until this point. Um, but again, it's very important from Turkey's point of view to prevent something like this from prospering because uh, obviously they've been having their own war with the PKK for 40 years now. Uh, the Kurdish element within Syria, the Democratic Unity Party, it's adherent to the same ideology as the PKK, and many of their fighters are former PKK. Um, so from Turkey's goal, it does not want to see any sort of um, autonomous Kurdish administration on its border, especially one that is, you know, sort of implementing these Ocalanist ideas. Uh, and so Afrin gets invaded. Uh, the fighting over that lasts a few months with the SDF eventually withdrawing in order to prevent Afrin itself from being completely destroyed in a fight. So then we have uh, the Syrian National Army now, as it's called, in control of Afrin in addition to these other opposition parts. Um, the next major escalation, and again, it comes with a kind of restructuring or in addition to the fighting force, is in October 2019. Uh, this very famously was when Trump withdrew uh, U.S. forces from Syria and mm -hmm. essentially greenlit a Turkish operation in the area. And a few weeks before this, um, what we had was the National Liberation Front, which was a coalition of various um, kind of Islamist elements that were operating in northern Syria that had not previously been part of the Syrian National Army. They get absorbed and subsumed into it in October of 2017. And just a few weeks later, um, this operation to create a buffer zone in parts of northern Syria is launched. Um, Turkey and the SNA take control of um, Tel Abyad and Ras Al Ain, the two major cities in this area, and establish a huge buffer zone with really the intent of repatriating uh, refugees to this area. Um, Arab refugees specifically. Um, and then 
we have this reach, like, like I said, the, these factions here are just sort of allergic to cooperating unless Turkey kind of forces them to in a major operation. Uh, so for that reason, there's been a lot of restructurings along the way with the different legions. At one point, they said, forget about these legions, uh, which are essentially kind of divisions, you know, um, like just organized based on like these different operations rooms that just led to more infighting. Uh, and so eventually what we have uh, recently is this final restructuring into three different legions um, that still exists to this day. So we have basically elements of the original second legion mixed in with the first legion. They, they basically restructured the whole thing to try to make it more um, efficient and more like a cohesive fighting force. But it's not really working because again, at the end of the day, the factions do what the factions want to do, right? Um, and to go a step further, I mean, uh, MIT, like I said, in the Turkish equivalent of like the CIA is heavily involved here. Um, Sadat, which is the Turkish equivalent of the Wagner Group, a private military contractor is also heavily involved here in terms of like the training. Um, and it's important to note that um, some of these factions have become essentially mercenaries for Turkish uh, political goals in other parts of the world, most notably Libya and Azerbaijan. So um, certain factions, particularly the Turkmen factions like Hamza Division, Sultan Murad, Sultan uh, Soleiman Shah, they have been basically the chief recruiters of fighters to send to places like Libya, to places like Karabakh, to basically be used as mercenaries uh, in charge of the um, Turkish geopolitical strategy. For example, in Libya, they got sent to the front lines in Tripoli. I mean, this isn't a podcast about Libya, so I don't want to expand on it too much, but Turkey is supportive of the GNA, which is the UN-recognized government of Libya. And Essentially, they tasked factions in northern Syria with the goal of providing fighters to be sent to support the GNA in Libya. These fighters fought on the front lines in Tripoli. Um, I mean, some of these fighters actually weren't even parts of a faction beforehand, but um, the problem is, is that the economy is completely wrecked. I mean, the infrastructure a lot in a lot of parts of northern Syria is not great because of the Assad regime's bombings and because of corruption on the SIGs and, and Turkey's end. Um, so it forces a lot of people who weren't fighters beforehand to sort of take these offerings. You know, um, I think uh, if, right off the top of my head, it's about $3,000 uh, for like a three month deployment uh, and then additional payments for like life insurance um, if someone gets killed, I mean, there are fathers and sons that go together just because they need to provide for their families or because they want to use that money to start a business in Syria when they get back. Um, the problem is, is that the way funds are distributed to these fighters is that it has to go through the faction leaders first. And the faction leaders will hoard a lot of the money for themselves. And what ends up happening is a lot of these fighters don't end up receiving what they were promised. Some do. A lot of them don't, and it depends on whether you have connections, essentially, if you get paid what you're, what you're owed. And for these fighters, the ones in Libya, at least, it's pretty miserable goings. I mean, they're not allowed to leave base. If they have their phones out too much, they get tortured. Um, again, it, it's like 
they are being extorted essentially for these faction leaders to gain greater control and greater political influence. Um, it's really sad because, I mean, you either choose between, you know, destitution in Syria or being used as a proxy um, in a conflict that's not yours. Um, and now some of these uh, fighters aren't, you know, worthy being of sympathetic towards either because a lot of them have committed rapes. I mean, some Libyans have protested their presence because they've committed assault or rapes or just abuses themselves. Um, but a lot of them are also just, you know, trying to provide for their families. Um, and then with the 2020 Karabakh war, they were also used very heavily that, um, whereas in Libya, a lot of it was down to, you know, economic reasons. You see in Azerbaijan and Karabakh a lot more of perhaps political sympathy with Turkish efforts. They see what they're doing there as fighting Russia a lot more. And Russia, of course, is allied with the Assad regime. So there's a bit more of a political lean to that. But still, at the end of the day, a lot of them were being uh, recruited solely on economic um, reasons. And uh, Turkey is dishing out quotas for the factions to provide. So the factions will go out and say, hey, uh, come and fight. You'll get this such and such money or hey, come and fight, or else we'll take your house, you know, that your family needs. It's it's just a really messed up situation. And um, I mean, from some reports, those uh, fighters in uh, Karabakh, the Syrian fighters were um, kind of used as cannon fodder. They suffered uh, proportionally higher casualties than Azerbaijani ground forces, um, which shows you the extent of what they're treated as. Um, and to another point, I mean, a lot of these factions too, they are, um, crime syndicates. I mean, a lot of the factions in Libya, um, they rely on human trafficking or drug trafficking in order to get extra money. Um, I mean, it's a pretty intricate system where, uh, because they don't get paid unless, uh, someone reaches the shores of Italy, uh, they don't receive payment. And so they take extra care to try and make sure that the process gets done correctly. Um, they will forge papers for certain people, even ISIS members basically, just to smuggle them out of Syria where they might be targeted to places in Europe where they can sort of hide and be a little more covert. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, Turkey, Turkey has actually tried to stop this along with the SIG, but again, the factions just kind of do what they want. Uh, and there's a lot of corruption, so people end up getting paid off. Um, drug trafficking is the same. Um, the drug, the, especially Capricorn, it flows from like Libya to uh, parts of Syria, then to uh, Libya, where it's finally sold off because um, it's higher quality than a lot of stuff they have there, apparently. Um, so yeah, the SIG is a fighting force. It's very disorganized, um, unless there's a military operation ongoing, uh, they're not really on the same page very often. And a lot of times they're just being used as sort of uh, crime syndicates for human trafficking, for drug smuggling, or for extorting people in Syria. I mean, it's a really unfortunate situation because, I mean, it's not like a lot of these people want to be back under the Assad regime, uh, but at the same time, like, they definitely would probably prefer something better than this, yeah. right? Um, RRL Shakia too, it's worth talking about them for a quick moment. Uh, Jihadist faction that's part of the Syrian National Army. 
Um, they were the ones who assassinated the Kurdish politician uh, Hebron Kilaf during uh, okay. Operation uh, Peace Spring in 2019. Uh, or am I getting, I might be getting the operation they mixed up. But um, the point is like 2019, the Turkish Operation Area, they're the ones who assassinated Hebron Kilaf, uh, became very notorious. They, these were also the guys who sort of denied entry to U.S. Special Forces during the counter-ISIS operation. Um, basically, they would not let U.S. forces into northern Syria, and they had to turn around. Um, they are like the chief sort of abusers in parts of Afrin where they steal people's crops, they steal olives, they extort people for their housing. Uh, I mean, again, this is just another example of how the... SIG as a fighting force is just very ineffective and corrupt to the detriment of both their own aims and to the livelihoods of people under their control. Hmm. I also think I think it's very telling that kind of Erdogan's plan to build Turkey's sphere of influence is still done on the back of Syrians. Yeah, I mean, uh, and a lot of uh, Syrian opposition figures still see Turkey as a friend, um, but really. If you examine it objectively, it, I mean, they're not really their friends either. I mean, I think uh, even Erdogan's kind of tacitly admitted that Assad's going to stay in power. And there's been preliminary talks that there will be sort of a meeting between Russia and Turkey and Syria. Maybe Iran will be involved too to sort of settle uh, the war once and for all. And I mean, even with these operations against Kurdish forces, they're kind of a quid pro quo with Russia, right? Because after the um, Turkish operation in 2019, a few months later, we had a major um, Assad regime offensive against opposition controlled areas. And that was basically done with like the notion, hey, we're going to, you know, invade these parts of northern Syria. So that way the Assad regime you know, can get its influence there, but we're also going to let them do it in northern Syria as well. Um, this is sort of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Now, Turkey did eventually get involved in this because either Russian warplanes or Syrian warplanes did bomb a Turkish base. And the Turkish response was very heavy to this. I mean, they kind of decimated the, the Syrian Arab army, uh, destroyed dozens of Assad regime uh, vehicles, killed hundreds of Assad regime soldiers. And it's like, okay, good, but if you could do this the whole time and you were truly supportive of, you know, overthrowing Assad and supporting the Syrian opposition, it seems clear you could have done it, you know, I mean, they just stood no chance against against uh, the Turkish NATO, you know, supplied army. Um, and yeah, I mean, the future for the SIG is really uncertain in this regard, because, you know, if the Assad regime does make a deal with Turkey, uh, you know, where does that leave the SIG? Um, mm. You know, there's a chance they would probably divide and conquer sort of areas in northern Syria, but would these areas get, you know, annexed into Turkey? I mean, some people certainly think that's a possibility, right? Especially with how we see, you know, the uh, forced demographic uh, replacement in areas in northern Syria and like, sort of the suppression of Kurdish identity in these areas and even Yazidi identity in these areas. Mm -hmm. um, one of the unfortunate elements is um, when the SNA sort of took control of Afrin, they um, demolished Yazidi temples there and Yazidi graves. 
Um, SF Weezies haven't been through enough uh, in the past yeah. few years. Um, horrendous. It is really, I mean, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Kurdish isn't even taught in these areas. Turkish is. If you, I mean, if you wander through parts of uh, the opposition controlled areas, you might, I mean, if you're like a novice, if you're not, you know, familiar with the area, you might be confused and think you were in Turkey because there's Turkish flags hanging everywhere. Um, a lot of the SNA commanders are wearing Turkish flag patches on their uniforms. <laughs> um, and it sort of makes you question, you know, at least for on the ground elements, you know, are you really fighting for Syria anymore? Or are you just fighting for Turkey at this mm. point? Um, and I guess they kind of dodged a bullet from the SNA's perspective with the Turkish election because uh, Erdogan won. And even though Erdogan has made his own, you know, sort of admissions about Assad, winning and about repatriating all of Syrian refugees. Um, at the end of the day, he's probably going to be more supportive in the long run than the, op the Turkish opposition would have been, which was vehemently discriminatory against Syrian refugees and very anti-Turkish uh, military presence in parts of Syria. Without Turkey, it's hard to see how the SIG even operates. It provides, you know, all of the utilities. It provides the political backing. Um, I think that's the point. I I don't yeah. think they do. Like uh, they, they they just don't operate without Turkey. I think Turkey is the absolute backbone of anything that Sig is able to do right now. No, absolutely. And you even hear like complaints from local councils about this because even though uh, quote unquote they get to freely elect their representatives, I mean, especially in the area of like aid and humanitarian stuff. Everything's run through AFAD, again, the Turkish mm. Humanitarian Agency. So unless you're jiving kind of with um, whatever they're wanting to do, it's not going to get done. Um, even again with the infighting, I mean, Turkey could have the power to kind of stop this stuff from happening. We saw that when HTS got involved last year. Turkey mm. intervened and kind of said, hey, you guys need to back off to, you know, your own areas. And, you know, the fighting kind of ceased, but... Again, that begs the question, if that's happening in this instance, why isn't it happening more? You know, why isn't Turkey putting the foot down more? And uh, perhaps it's because they have an interest in keeping these factions divided rather than on a uniform front where they could reasonably counter the Assad regime or even stand up to Turkey and, you know, say, hey, we've had enough of your interference. We want to be truly a Syrian force. Um, not that I think that would happen at this point just because of the way it's divided i mean it's truly hard to like read this and like kind of not get depressed about the situation i mean you don't you don't have to be a fan of like any of these factions you know to be frank i'm kind of not i mean like i've told you they, they basically most of them operate like criminal gangs right um but from a perspective of being sympathetic to just normal people on the ground there's not really good options for them you know there's only bad and less bad um Certainly. And yeah, it, it's it's pretty terrible. Hmm. And I think for my final question, it's how could you elaborate on Sig's approach to how to phrase it, like the accountability and mm -hmm. kind of justice for the people in the areas that they kind of uh, rule over, mm -hmm. like and to really address the horrendous crime like war crimes and human rights abuses that the people in these specific areas have faced in the last 
12 years because mm-hmm. they they currently rule over some of the most heavily affected areas of the entire war yeah i mean um they have been vehemently opposed of course to any sort of reconciliation and rehabilitation of the assad regime uh, the soc the syrian opposition council released countless statements recently objecting to what the arab league's been doing in terms of inviting assad back um they met with EU officials to try and, you know, sort of emphasize, hey, we cannot sort of, you know, say that this is okay in regards to the Assad regime, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of being recognized again as the government of Syria. Um, and they are certainly supportive of the Caesar sanctions. Um, for those listening who might not be aware, um, Caesar was the um, sort of uh, alias given to a leaker within the Syrian uh, government who exposed truly the level of torture and abuse that was going on in Assad regime prisons. Um, And so to that end, uh, the US has implemented this package of sanctions against figures it accuses of supporting the Assad regime. Uh, So there's a lot of members of the Assad family itself on there. Um, And the Caesar sanctions do have ways basically for them to be withdrawn, but there are ways that, um, frankly, those uh, people they are affecting are never going to agree to. Uh, for example, an end to Syrian and Russian aircraft bombing civilians, never going to happen. Um, Iranian, Syrian, and Russian forces uh, connected to them no longer restrict humanitarian access to besieged areas. Um, I mean, this is a contention every few months with the Al Bab Hara, um, and I'm probably butchering a little bit the pronunciation, but with the border crossings into parts of um, the opposition controlled areas where there are genuinely millions of displaced people who need this humanitarian efforts. I mean, Russia holds the UN hostage over this every few months, right? Um, So again, that's not really gonna happen. Um, All political prisoners are released and the appropriate international human rights organizations are given full access to serious prisons and detention facilities. Not going to happen. I mean, if it did happen, they'd probably try to destroy as much evidence as possible beforehand. Um, Bombing of uh, medical facilities, schools, residential areas, uh, including markets by Syrian, Russian, Iranian forces, uh, cease. Again, hard to see this happening, um, especially if there ends up being one major final offensive against whoever that may be. I mean, they're not going to agree to that. Why would they? The safe, voluntary, and dignified return of displaced Syrians uh, is achieved. The problem with that is that a lot of Syrians don't want to return to Syria um, with the solid power. Um, even in the SIG areas, I mean, uh, a lot of new housing is being built. A lot of this is being funded by Qatar, too, uh, who is still heavily involved. Um, they're really, besides Turkey, the major foreign power that's still supportive of the SIG. Um, so they're building housing there. Um, certain Palestinian, uh, even kind of aid organizations have helped fund the building of houses there, which uh, certain Kurdish uh, affiliate elements have accused them of uh, ethnic cleansing in regards to this, because uh, all of this is happening in Afrin, the formerly majority Kurdish areas. I mean, I even saw an Instagram post a few days ago from uh, the Mulham team which uh, is kind of a 
uh, nonprofit operating on the ground. They're talking about building new housing in the Azaz, the area of Azaz. Um, but I mean, uh, they don't want, a lot of people just don't want to go back because the future is uncertain. Uh, they, they recognize the abuses in these areas by the SIG as well. Um, and it's kind of disgusting sometimes, uh, like just when I was doing like research to make sure I was on top of my game for this, I came across one article from TRT, which is a Turkish state affiliate talking about how before the war, there was, you know, 1 million people in this area. And afterwards there's 2.3 million. This demonstrates the effective governments of like the SIG. And it's, it's so insulting because the reason there's a swelling of people there is because they all got displaced from aerial <laughs> bombing campaigns, you know, and a lot of the people being repatriated genuinely don't want to go back, but Turkey doesn't want them there either because it's bad for Erdogan's approval rating, you know, it's just really insulting. Um, so there's that, which again, a lot of people just don't want to go back as long as the side's in control. It's, and it's just such a foul rhetoric. Like it, a, takes my breath away it, it genuinely is i mean i remember reading that and just kind of having to like go away for a, f a few minutes and just fume it, it's so insulting like if you genuinely care about like protecting people i i i don't understand anyway you know shills will be shills right um the final point that would like get the caesar sanctions lifted would be um accountability for perpetrators of war crimes in syria and justice for victims um, including by participation in the credible and independent truth and reconciliation process. Again, at this stage, it's hard to see anything like that happening, right? Uh, with so much leverage being in the Assad regime's court, um, why would they? Why would they agree to this when it would just end up with a lot of them in jail, right? Especially Assad himself, you know. Um, so I mean, to me, a lot of these are just non-starters, which I think is supposed to be the point. Um, but yeah, the, the Syrian Opposition Council continues to object to any uh, rehabilitation of Assad. Um, I mean, it's kind of sad because even in their controlled areas, they clamp down on protests against like anything. Um, I mean, there's an example of the civil police in Jirabulus uh, dismissing three members of their own unit for protesting against normalization with Assad. And it's like, I'm confused. Are you guys like actually anti-Assad or not? You know, it, it's super weird. Um, it's very, that's very telling of the Syrian yeah. civil war, really. Like the mm -hmm. absolute kind of spider web of connections and different factions that either like each other one day, hate each other the next, and will lie about both to each other and to everyone else around like it it's endless like doing all the mm -hmm. research i've done for this podcast and speaking to the people i've spoken to like i said it, i don't see an end in sight because it's just that kind of intertwined at this point where everything is all over the place no you're exactly right and whenever i'm talking to someone who's not really familiar with the syrian conflict that much but they want to know more I tell them, well, you better get, you know, a thesaurus out because, you know, there's <laughs> probably hundreds of factions I could go off and just like name and hundreds of different acronyms, you know, it's just such a giant mess. You know, how do you even begin to get something like this under control? How do you begin like, 
um, you know, say these opposition areas get subsumed into Turkey eventually, like, how does Turkey even begin to, like, get these factions under control? Is it going to have to basically go to war with these factions? Um, what's going to happen here? You know, how does it reconcile this? Mm. I mean, and back to the original point about, you know, uh, seeking, you know, justice or, like, uh, you know, um, accountability for crimes committed in these areas. I mean, for a lot of Neon SIG members, they have no interest in it um, because a lot of them themselves are complicit and they benefit economically from sort of the extortion of the local populace of these factions kind of running the show because they're mm -hmm. affiliated with them uh, and they benefit from the political ties with Turkey. I mean, Turkish MIT, uh, Turkish special forces, the military police, they're all involved here in like false arrests, you know, on accusations, sometimes baseless, sometimes true, of um, people previously working with the Kurdish Autonomous Administration. I mean, there was one man who was uh, basically his family member got arrested on these accusations and he went to go to go to, you know, the military police ask, hey, what's going on? Why has my family member been arrested? Then he himself was arrested and tortured and beaten. I mean, um, Gosh. yeah, I mean, ironically, uh, perhaps the amount of arbitrary arrest goes down when these factions fight each other just because they're, they're not focused on sort of extortion and yeah. like um, reining themselves in they're focused on fighting each other. And the point of the military police to begin with when it was established was supposed to be to, um, you know, kind of rein in these factions, you know, to arrest wrongdoers. The problem is, is that it's made up of members of the factions themselves. Mm. And a lot of them are just collecting an extra paycheck. So they're collecting a paycheck from the military police and they're collecting a paycheck from their faction. And what ends up happening is nothing actually gets done that's productive either the fighting and the corruption continues or someone's getting arrested to get extorted or because maybe they did actually commit a crime or they were actually a part of you know the assad government at one point i mean uh the factions did kind of torture to death one former uh nlf which is an assad affiliated militia in their areas i mean so that's not like a proper court procedure they got him and they tortured him um so, so, I mean, uh, that's not exactly like, uh, I won't be meeting any UN standards, I guess, for like a trial anytime soon, right? Um, I mean, even the free police too will crack down on protests. I mean, last year there were protests all throughout the opposition controlled areas about payment, about, you know, teachers not getting paid well, about uh, doctors not getting paid well, but the civil police uh, basically helped shut these down immediately. Um, so, I mean, there, it's hard to see how um, there will be accountability for really anyone uh, in Syria, which is pretty sad because, I mean, so many different people have been the victims of abuses, you know, and no, no faction is free of it, right? Like, you could argue that, like, perhaps the SDF is the least abusive, but even then, there's still abuses on their end, right? Mm. Um, but it's just hard to see anyone getting justice in a major way. I mean, last year, early last year, there was the court case in Germany where uh, a colonel named Anwar Raslan, uh, who was responsible for dozens and dozens of tortures and beatings and killings and rapes as a member of the Assad government, 
was found guilty of these crimes and sentenced to life in prison. But this happened in Europe, you know, not in Syria, um, not anywhere, you know, close to where the actual conflict's going on. So I think that's probably the closest that Syrians will get to truth and justice is anything that happens in Europe in regards to trying, you know, members of the Assad regime or former ISIS members. But in regards to these factions, you know, reforming themselves or the Assad government reforming themselves, I mean, it's wishful yeah. thinking, really. It's a horribly depressing point for us to end on, but it's the it's the reality yeah, sure, yeah. in the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. Uh, so is there anything you'd like to plug? Any socials or anything that you want to put out there? Yeah, sure. Um, so on Instagram, I am at Daniel Hole, and that's spelled D-A-N-E-E-L-H-A-L-L. -L. That's not how my name is actually spelled, but it, Daniel Hole properly was already filmed, so I figured whatever. On uh, Twitter, um, I'm trying to tweet more about, like, um, you know, my writing and stuff. Uh, so I've made a new account, kind of, and that is at it's Daniel Hole, I-T-S, Daniel spelled regularly, D-A-N-I-E-L-H-A-L-L. Uh, and that's where you can find the writing I post. I will also share anything uh, modern insurgent uh, posts on there as well. So, yeah, that's where you can find me. Fantastic. So everyone go and give Dan a follow and you can find the modern insurgent on everything. Twitter, TikTok, Instagram and Patreon on at modern insurgent. So go sign up for all of them especially patreon and you can Absolutely. find me at, at joey collins one on instagram j-o-e-y collins one so thank you very much guys and goodbye the modern insurgent is your impartial independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries podcasts reports and scholarly articles reporting on the underreported.